Welcome one and all to our last scheduled edition of Parsha Talk, the best Torah talk in Dutchess County, New York. I am your host, Rabbi Barry Chesler from the Schechter School of Long Island. And with me today are my old comrades in arms for the first time this summer, Rabbi Elliot Malamud of Highland Park, New Jersey, and Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanowski of Congregation Ache Chesed in the island of Manhattan. It's appropriate to give a shout out to all those who have appeared on Parsha Talk this year so far. In the first month, Dr. Allison Joseph and Rabbis Joel Levinson, Michael Pont, Esther Reed, Aaron Schoenbrunn, and in the second month, Hope Lavav and Rabbi Rob Scheinberg. Boys, it's good to have you back. It's great to be back. It's we are fantastic. very grateful for all of those people who stood in our stead Absolutely. and we returned to Total Talk. I want to say, Rabbi Chesler has been doing an amazing job. Amazing job. I, I am one of the three listeners that has been Well, sitting. I was going to say, we like to talk about our listeners one and all. <laughs> Hoping that the one, you mean one and two. <laughs> hoping that the one is not the all. That's right. Well, but, but let me just tell to all our many listeners how Elliot and I are be they are very 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 happy to be returning with our friend Barry to Torah Talk. This is a high point. This is of the our high point. Kaitz Alpai and Mushmonas. Right. We missed it. We missed being together. It's a chavruta. It's a, it's just an amazing bonding experience. It's great to have you with us. It's a particularly rich parsha, as I've said, for each of the parshiot and sefer devarim. It's parshatra A. We have a lot of different topics in the Torah reading: the centralization of the cult, the obligation to wipe out foreign worship, the dietary laws make an appearance. The source for Tzedakah, as you mentioned in our prep session, Jeremy, and the Deuteronomic version of the holidays. Why don't we begin with chapter 13, verse 5, which, Elliot, I think you have handy. I have handy. So, so this uh, verse is something that is actually quoted in our, in our Sidur, based on uh, a rather well-known teaching from Masechet Sota. So many different verbs. In English, follow none but the Lord your God and revere none but Him. Observe His commandments alone and heed only His orders. Worship none but Him and hold fast to Him. So the rabbis ask, is it possible to follow God? How can you follow God? God is a consuming fire. And so the answer they give is, if you can't follow God directly, you follow God's attributes. Just as God clothes the naked, you close the naked. Just as God feeds the hungry, you feed the hungry, etc., etc. And this is the one of the great cornerstone texts uh, that gives rise to um, the the ethical impulse in Judaism. That is, or the communitarian impulse in Judaism, taking care of each other, and that is a way of imitating God. Or as the philosophers say, imitatio dei. They love to speak Latin, and they did it so well. <laughs> well, yeah, Latin, there are certain things you can only express in Latin, but even more, there are more things you can express only in Hebrew. Absolutely. And, uh, and this is, to me, as, as you said, this is a, a cornerstone of our faith that, uh, you know, Christians uh, will like to say, and when George Bush was the president, he used to say this and that, people made fun of him, but it was actually right on. You know, he used to say, what would Jesus do? Mm-hmm. And... And that is a, 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 a core religious question I wouldn't ask about uh, Yeshua Notri. I would say, what would Moses do, right? Uh, you can imitate sacred behaviors 
And you can, through that, imitate God. Human beings are obviously uh, mortal, and God is immortal. We're finite, God is infinite. But God is the creator who created us in the image of God. And that may refer to certain of our faculties, but it certainly refers to our capacity to love, to care. And this teaching, which you mentioned, is as God feeds the hungry, so you should feed the hungry. As God clothes the naked, so you should clothe the naked. Gives us great ethical uh, motivation. So go ahead. It's striking that the Torah then invites us, only it doesn't really invite us, it commands us to then wipe out the idol worshippers. So we can understand the Metatio Dei, Tzalem Elohim, as a very positive response to our religious impulses, but what do we make of the command to kill those that the Torah abhors? So I would, I would first say that, that obviously we don't, we don't enact legislation today based on Torah. We, we want to put this in a context where false gods, that is anything that is worshipped other than God, is seen as the root of all evil. And in that society, it was, and, and in many societies, substitution of anything for one moral authority, one moral law, is the root of all evil. We, we have examples, examples of Nazism, examples of Stalinism, examples of, of, of communism, where millions and millions of people are killed uh, to serve an ideology that is essentially an idolatrous ideology. And you can see why idolatry uh, and its forms are, are in biblical terms seen as the root of all evil. So are we commanded to wipe out Nazism and Stalinism? We entered the war against the Germans after the Japanese bombed us. We never really entered into a, a hot war against the Soviet Union. And in fact, we joined them in World War II to fight against Hitler. When they understood what the war was about, they, they, they understood that it was to defeat Nazism, to defeat Germany, to defeat Hitler. And, and it was clear. I mean, Churchill was, was saying this from the beginning and even before. No, I understand that. But do we, we didn't have a command. In other words, it, our initial impulse was to fight for other reasons. Right. And, and it's, it's fair to say, in, in the space between um, wrestling with a religious idea and putting pr uh, policies into practice in the contemporary world, there's a lot of space and it can be, it can be quite complex. So, for example, in 2018, where, where we're having this talk before Shabbos, uh, I think it is widely viewed that the Iraq War of 2003 was a terrible mistake. But nobody wouldn't say, everyone would agree, Saddam Hussein was evil. But we wouldn't make the, the fast line, the, the quick line between everyone who's evil we should, we should go to war against. Because then we'd be against the war against everybody. Well, you know, there's, there's no question that the dictators of any number of terrible countries are evil. Um, they murder their own people, they exploit. And yet we don't want to draw a too fast of a line um, now, the, in this case, we're talking about, in the Torah's case, we're talking about uh, uh, the statement that we cannot live with certain kinds of perverse ideals. And it's true that in Torah times, it, it probably occasioned behaviors that we today would not, would not recognize. They would have probably motivated ancient Israelites to behaviors that look kind of Taliban-y, and we would not like that. We would not endorse that. But I also think that we as Jews do recognize that there are certain kinds of gross exploitations and certain kinds of really perverse ideologies that we should be called upon to resist. 
we are called upon to see what the roots of evil is are and and idolatry as as is understood by the torah is the root of all evil which is why it takes such a central place in this parsha it takes such a central place in dvarim it's it's one of the the themes that comes back and uh, all the time in dvarim it's rooted in the ten commandments rooted in the essential vision of israel that israel is exists to proclaim the oneness of god to the exclusion of everything else i just want to say one word about about maimonides uh, Maimonides, over and over again, in the Guide for the Perplexed, quotes a passage from the Talmud that somebody that somebody who denies idolatry is Jewish. Is, supports the whole Torah. That's so right. he, the, the key thing is to deny idolatry. Right. And in his law code, Rambam says something totally amazing and totally powerful, which is that idol worship is not only the worship of false gods, it is also the false worship of the true God. Uh. That it is possible to worship Hashem in idolatrous ways. And I think that that is a, a very, very important theme to absorb religiously. That even if you say you're worshiping Hashem, if it produces in you um, fanatical, violent behavior, something like that, uh, you're, you're obviously on the wrong path. I would, you know, uh, be so bold as to say that we can see that sometimes people treat the the land of Israel idolatry. We can we can think that some people treat the state of Israel idolatry. Some people treat the Torah as Torahatry. And the Kotel as Kotelatry. Was the great Yeshayahu called the Discotel. Right, when you make an object to symbolize and replace the divine, that's idolatry. But we're not going to say in the name of God that those people should be Well, you're not going to say that. Well, no, I, look, obviously. So you will. No, course. I'm not going to say that. What I'm going to say is that the Torah represents the first word in historical context on this subject. And we have layers and layers of commentary and layers of conversation that we don't, no one is going out and say, go be a Taliban and smash idols. Well, it's interesting. I was reading a piece today. The war in Afghanistan has gone now, on now for 14 years. It originated against the Taliban. No one, I think, thinks that there are not evil in some way and yet we're looking for an exit strategy we're, we're not signing up to keep fighting them we're not signing up to keep fighting but that but look so we don't want to use the torah for political science exactly as you said before but if we can move on to chapter 14 which yes. is the dietary laws but it begins with that striking image you are the children of god and it goes on to prescribe a couple of behaviors that are associated with mourning. But even before that, you want, there, we should cite the, the Mishnah Navod where it says, when you behave as children, you know, God will, will regard you as children. And then there's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a source that, that is about the, the unconditionality of God's love. That, that you are children to God whether you behave properly or where you do not behave properly. And, and um, it always is striking, you know, banima tem, you know, to, to regard ourselves as children of God, you know, God as a parent, and God uh, desires nothing more than for the children to be together. Like any parent, any parent, you know, wants their children to, to get the along. Best. They want yeah. the best. Lotid go to do, right? Don't, don't make little groups. <laughs> a good talk. And you know, it's don't cut you, yourselves up. As you, as you say that, uh, I'm reminded, first of all, you are banim ladonai lechem, 
you are children of the Lord, but that's often juxtaposed with the statements that you are also avadim. Yes. Right? You are servants of God. And, and sometimes you'll hear the Midrash say, well, when you do God's will, you're children, and when you're not, you're treated as avadim, as servants. And we have this in, in Arash Tzifatenu, and on Rosh Hashanah, it says, you know, im kavanim, im kavadim. Sometimes we are your children, sometimes we are your servants. If we are your children, then love us as a parent, right. love's child. But God is one. And if, if if we are your servants, then then may you may you do you know judgment for us. Uh, God is one, but we do get different aspects of, of that overall oneness at different moments. Avinu Malkin, both Avinu and Malkin. That's right. Moving into Rosh Chodesh Elul here on Shabbat. Oh, I give up. Whatever culprit rabbi wants to hear. It's Rosh Chodesh Elul. No, no but well, I, I want to hear us the shofar on Sunday. I got, I brought mine up. Oh, I forgot to bring. Yeah, yeah. I have no. Two. I, so so look. I, I, I like the idea that, that you know, there, there's an unconditional love, that Israel could stray so far from God and yet God will, will continue to love us. And this, this is also a problematic issue within, within Dvarim, because at the end of Dvarim you're going to see God saying, I'm going to hide myself, I'm going to abandon the people. And, and Isaiah already, in the, part, in the Haftarat that we've been reading over the last couple of weeks, I will not abandon you last week, can a mother abandon her child? You know, so God's unconditional love is is something that uh, I think has to pulsate through through lots of this and through our conversation. So we have the dietary, dietary laws, laws. Um, the Deuteronomic version, which, as Professor Tige reminds us, is a little bit toned down from other versions in other parts of the Tanakh. We have the familiar prescription on land animals that we can eat, as well as a much longer list of the permitted animals the sea animals that we can eat, a list of birds, and of course the verse that concludes it, So the intent of these dietary laws is to keep us apart, to separate us. And it's striking that in the conservative movement there has been a movement within perhaps to relax the restrictions on intermarriage. So where do we draw the line between what we need to do to keep us apart and what we want to do in order to be more inclusive, perhaps more American. Look, I think I think you you've cut through to to one of the central defining questions of our time, which is universalism versus particularism. And and I think as a Jewish community, we are we are deeply divided over this, and we are we are we're fighting with each other about this. I mean, our movement is really going to get ripped apart by this question. You know, can you be a particularist? Jewish movement, community, and also universal at the same time. Classically, we've always said this was, was the case, but, but when people put their individual rights and desires above the needs of the community, then everything, everything gets dissolved. Everything that's uh, uh, potentially, uh, you know, dissolving. So it's worth recalling the first verse of the parsha this week. Behold, I place this before you. And Ibn Ezra notes the address is to the individual, even though the collective is being spoken to, the community, because the individual has to find him or herself in the community. The individual cannot stand apart from the community, go in his or her own direction, but somehow must feel addressed as a member, as we like to say, a member of the tribe. Right. So perhaps that's one way in which we could go. You know, I, I don't think that there's any such thing as universal culture. 
we have certain things that are, because we are human beings, that are common to all human beings, whether you're from Bangladesh or Australia or, or you know, Canada or whatever. Um, but culture is by definition specific. It's like, to use a metaphor, you can't speak language in general. Right? You have, to speak, tried. you have to speak a language, <laughs> and a language with its own grammar, and a language with its own set of vocabulary. And so the kashrut laws, to me, uh, are, are just part of what it is to have a specific culture. I'll confess that of the major areas of Jewish practice, kashrut is the one that I find least inspiring. Because I don't find it... I do it, I wouldn't consider not doing it, um, but, but it doesn't seem to me meaningful, if I told you that pig was kosher and cows were treif, it would be the same, it would feel the same, it would just, we would have different specific behaviors. So, so I, I would just take issue with that, I would say, you know, we teach co- people for conversion and I would say that one of the things that, that I teach them is that kashrut is a defining feature of Judaism in terms of defining your life. Now, kashrut, the way that it's presented in the Bible and the way that we present it today uh, are, are completely different. I mean, when kashrut becomes looking at, at labels and not understanding a certain ethical predisposition towards what it means to consume food, we've lost it. Okay, so Elliot, you're a vegan. I'm a vegan, but... Do you I, keep kosher? Of course I keep kosher. Well, so you've restricted yourself to the foods that no longer fall under the prohibition. I, for me, it's so, so what, easy to could, keep if kosher. You could speak, I understand, but if yeah. you could speak to what makes that religiously significant to you because it's, as you said it's more than the rules it's not you're not choosing look I derive a lot of satisfaction out of understanding that the food that I eat doesn't come from animals even though that was not the primary motivation for me to become a vegan it was more practical than anything but but I get a lot of satisfaction and a lot of ability to boast to people that I don't kill animals uh, for for the sake of food, so you find it inspired. It's, it is inspired. In the end, it's inspired. But it, but but I understand that 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 it we're, you know veganism is a fad today, and it's about you know people need to eat meat. I'm not going to take. They're not going to deny that. But what kosher does better than any other system is say, look, we make a concession to human behavior. The human being is part godly and part animal, and and desires the consumption of flesh. So I want to look at it from a slightly different point of view. I went through different periods of my life, some where I kept kosher, some when I didn't, and then I had to decide what I was going to do. And I remember thinking about it at some length. Those of us who have had non-kosher food know that it's actually quite tasty, so you can't apply that taste to decide you're not going to keep kosher. And what I finally came down to is that even if Jews don't keep kosher, kashrut is the Jewish way to eat. It's a way of, that we identify as a people that we don't need like everyone else. Kashrut is one of those boundary issues which which has acted as a preserving force for the but, Jewish people. I said those are two different things. But by the way, I agree with everything you said. I, I, I of course would of course, of course kashrut is a defining issue of our community. I just think that the details of it are kind of arbitrary, with one major exception, which I'll save now from the parsha. But um, but I think that the way that kashrut does work effectively is both help us build communal boundaries, it also helps us um, not be, you know, mindless and automatic. You do have to pay attention to what you eat. And I especially think that saying brachot, if you ask me, are food practices that are spiritually ennobling, saying brachot is the top of the list. 
But I do want to so point out. So it's interesting because the bracha, of course, is speech, and perhaps that is the way in which we're closest like God. Yeah. Is that we speak. But, but look, I want to say one thing yeah. about the, the, the specific rules, which is mentioned in the parsha, is the prohibition on eating blood. Yes. Right? Um, Take care, restrain yourself not to eat the blood, for the blood is the sacred life of the animal. So the, as Ellie was saying, it's a concession to human frailty. We wish we didn't have to take other lives. You, the way we are constituted, we seem to want to take other lives, but not the whole blood. And there's a Mishnah actually in Nedarim, which is quite fabulous. It's sort of talking about something a little bit different, but the poetic power is great. It says that the difference between kosher animals and treif animals is that in, treif, in kosher animals, God gives you the body and maintains the soul. In treif animals, God maintains both the body and the soul. Right? God, the, the lobster just doesn't belong to you. Whatever. I, I mean, that, that's not a compelling reason for me. What's compelling to me is, is understanding that kashrut is built in a system where people live closer to their animals. And, and when you wanted to procure flesh for consumption, you have to actually go either to your flock or to your coop and you have to either shecht it yourself or you have to bring it to someone. And you have to see this. And the, and the encounter with life and death immediately changes a person, no matter how callous you can be. And, and we are so removed. When you buy your meat in a foam plate covered with, with plastic, you just don't have the experience of life. So I'm reminded of a story of a good friend of mine, actually the woman for whom my daughter, Elisa, is named. When she took her children to Cleveland to buy kosher meat once, they stopped at a live chicken market, and the seven-year-old child underwent the stark realization, chicken? I didn't know you meant chicken. (laughs) So we do have that, and I had the opportunity to explain to some of my kitot this week that the purpose of shechita is that you have to intentionally kill the animal. It can't die accidentally either by a natural cause or another animal, that you have to intend to eat it because it is alive. Right. And, and you that can't the, treat it lightly. And that the person entrusted with that killing has to be, you know, you know versed in and, and has to have a degree of piety that often is not the case, but, but, but has to be exemplary in a certain personal style. So we see kashrut then as something particularistic, and immediately almost the Torah then goes into something a little more universalistic, a concern for other people, which, as you mentioned earlier, Jeremy, is the element of stata of reconfiguring the way that we see others. So in chapter 15, we have a version of the sabbatical year where debts are going to be released every seven years so that the farmer is not going to be in debt in perpetuity. So in the course of that, it recognizes that if debts are going to be remitted every seven years, then in year five or six of the seven-year cycle, somebody who has a little bit more money is likely not to be uh, it's likely to be unwilling to help out their uh, their needy you know neighbors because human beings have a natural greediness to them sometimes. So the Torah says you're going to have to counteract your natural greediness. Lo ta'ametzet levavcha. Don't harden your heart. And don't close your hand up into a fist from your poor brother or sister. Open your hand wide to him. 
and grant to him whatever it is that he whatever that he needs take care lest you become a rotten son of a dog who says oh no the seventh year is coming I'm going to lose my money rather uh, give to him um, and uh, don't feel bad about it. Don't feel don't regret. feel like you're being missed. Don't don't feel what? Regret. Don't feel regret when that happens. So here the Torah is saying, you are uh, you're a fellow with your other person. You're not an independent actor. You together share a society. And what it means to be in sh- shared society is that you are responsible for somebody's you know well-being. So you have to open your heart to that person, which is a statement about empathy. And you have to open your hand, which is you don't just feel good for the person or feel with the person. You actually have to take the steps to to give them. And this is the source. This is our source text in the Torah for the mitzvah of giving staka. The language of the Torah is striking because over and over again, these people in straitened circumstances are described as your achicha, your brother, because it's very easy to think that this person is not your brother. That somehow if something bad has happened to someone perhaps through their own fault, perhaps through no fault of their own, that we somehow see them as diminished and somehow apart from us, which leads us almost naturally to think that we're better than they are. Right, and I was going to say that part of the tendency in modern democratic societies is to rely on the state to to do this, and and many of us um, kind of suspend our responsibilities because we think that well, that's what the state is doing. The state is providing the safety net. The state is providing all of the programs and all of the the uh, methods to alleviate poverty. When in fact, it doesn't. And and you know, we are all divided on on the extent to which this this is necessary and what what kinds of policies and what kinds of behaviors will alleviate poverty in 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 our midst right and whatever the government does we still have a, both an individual response and a exactly. communal response right. a, as jews if we could just move on for another minute or two in our concluding minutes to the the list of the holidays that concludes the parsha chapter 16 of devarim it has one of my favorite verses in the torah chapter 16 verse 3 which is the verse that says you're supposed to remember the exodus call yamechayacha which for the rabbis means that we say the third paragraph of the Shema both in the morning and in the evening because we always have to remember the Exodus. So if we could address for a moment the significance in our own day of the Exodus. How do we see the Exodus? We, we say it as religious Jews. We daven every day. We make multiple references to the Shema and the Mi'achamocha. I would say to inform the way we live our lives. So, so to see our experience, our historical experience, as one of ex- having experienced liberation, uh, I think sh- changes, shapes the way that we see the world. We understand ourselves as people who are liberated. When we invoke God, we, we, we are thinking of God, that God has taken us out of Egypt we, we ourselves want to go back to you know, that in our imagination. We're making an imaginative leap to see ourselves as if we ourselves left Egypt on, on Pesach, the Chodor Vador. Uh, and here, remembering the Exodus, not only for, for this world, but, but what you're, you're making reference to is the, the discussion in the Haggadah, even in the, in the future 
Because the, the story, the narrative of liberation is an eternal story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you, if you said Berkot HaShachar, Chanichim v'Chanichot, and you refer to God as Matir Asurim, or you say the Shemona Esrei, and you refer to God as Matir Asurim, the one who liberates the captive, you, you should feel in this way, and that's part of the, the particular experience of being a Jew, uh, our, our ancestors liberated from Egypt, and that's how our national consciousness was shaped. But it also stimulates you to look at the Asurim in other societies, all of those imprisoned in other societies, and be on the side of the imprisoned and not the imprisoners, um, and look forward. Because you know, this world has all too much slavery, but Yitzhiya Smithrayim reminds us that sometimes the slaves go free, and sometimes people access the power that enables them to find liberation, to be fully themselves, not tools that other people are exploiting for their own benefit. We might say also that we have an obligation, even the divine imperative to change, that where we are is not where we are going, and we need to have confidence, what our ancestors might have called bitachon, that these changes will be a blessing and not a curse. How, how, how's an American, you, can you not feel excitement when you think about how this, this narrative of Yitzhak Mitzrayim shaped the African-American experience and certainly the, the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. One of the most important things that has happened in the 250 years of American history and the intertwining of our story as Jews with those of some of our fellow Americans is to me tremendously inspiring. Right, and I would say also by extension it's, it's, a, it's part of the narrative of Zionism to emerge from being downtrodden and taking destiny into your own hands and to and to find a movement of liberation which which should be an inspiration for all peoples that are that are uh, downtrodden uh, what about just you know maybe as, as final we, word I, you know being rejoiced I mean, we are, we are uh, the pulpit element here right well you have your work cut out for you, you before right, you're allowed to rejoice you know, on the chag yeah. it's amazing you know, we're, we're a month and a half away from you know Sukkot um, but but it's you know someone once said it, the hardest mitzvah is the samachta to be rejoicing you know, it tells you you have to rejoice and yet you know by the time we get to Sukkot it is total joy it is it is a feeling of joy you know just the, the ability to be with people to be to be with your community and to just be thankful for what you have. Well, and the purpose of commandments in general, law, is to tell us that we have to be different from what we feel. If we're left to our own devices, we would do one thing. The law comes to tell us we have to do something else. Last word. Bye. So <laughs> we've come to the end of this exciting edition of Parsha Talk. It's good to have you both it's, back. You know what? This is wonderful. It's wonderful Very, to be back. And again, Barry Yeshikov for doing, taking the, the initiative all we'll summer. to you. And on this last Shabbat at Camp Ramad for Kayetz, Alpayim Shmonasre, we say Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.